If you're with us this morning and you have, uh, are without a Bible, we want you to have a Bible to not only hear what's being said, but also to read along on your own. And uh, so there, just raise your hand. There are men coming up the aisles right now. They'll spot you and get a Bible into your hands. And if you're visiting with us this morning, on Sunday mornings we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. That way we can hit everything he said, everything he did, and we want to understand him as best as we can until we see him uh, face to face. So we pick things up this morning uh, in Matthew chapter 23. We'll kind of do a kind of an overview, a little study of, of chapter 23, its entirety, but I just want to read the first 12 verses as we read the scriptures this morning. And then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and what, therefore whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you're all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Every single bit of it, every jot, every tittle, every thought, every intent, every paragraph, every chapter. And Lord, we thank you ahead of time for the uniqueness of this chapter and what it is uniquely designed to accomplish in each one of our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would couple the teaching of your word with a very active work of your Holy Spirit in our midst to instruct us, Jesus, about all of these things which are obviously very, very important to you. And we ask it in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. At this point in Jesus' public ministry, he is very nearly at the end of it, less really than a handful of days before he will die upon the cross for our sins. He is at this moment of this teaching that he gives in chapter 23 in the area of the temple in Jerusalem, in one of the courts. We're told in verse 1 that he is surrounded by a multitude and his disciples, and we know from earlier, in, in a couple chapters earlier, as all of this is just a sequence of, of the same event, that Jesus was in the courtyards of the temple and he was teaching his disciples. And as he was teaching his disciples, people were walking around and pretty soon they're aware that Jesus is teaching at the temple and people begin to gather around and gather around and gather around to listen to his teaching until the size of the group is described as a multitude. There's a huge group of people listening 
to him. While he is teaching them and, and just kind of the privacy and intimacy of, of that setting, uh, there is each one of the three major sects of the uh, Jewish religious system takes a turn in interrupting him. Uh, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They're threatened by his popularity among the common people. And so each group uh, posed, uh, formulated a particular question that was controversial to ask Jesus, not privately, but to ask it of him publicly so that in the chance that he would, in answering one way or another related to the question, that he would stumble in his answer or that he would give an answer that would potentially alienate some portion of the people that are now following him. So each one interrupts him in order in his, in his teaching. It's very rude, but this is what they do. There's a rudeness to them in their pride. And they interrupt him one after another with their... Uh, questions and their desire behind their question is not merely to stump Jesus attempt to do so but to stumble his followers they are endeavoring in some way that Jesus will give an answer that will then cause them to be stumbled by that answer and then cease to put their faith in Jesus as their savior and to follow him so this is a very active, calculated uh, uh, act on the part of these religious leaders to stumble these men and women away from being followers of Jesus. That is a very, very serious act in the mind of God and in the eyes of God. It is so serious that earlier in Jesus' ministry, he declared that if anyone stumbles... One of these little ones, speaking of his disciples, if anyone stumbles them in their faith in him, he said it would be better that a millstone would be put around their neck and they would be thrown into the Mediterranean Sea where they would obviously die as a result. That would be better than the eternal consequences that await those that stumble people who are uh, have their faith in Christ in an attempt to move them away from their faith. I think it's a great warning to public education. I think it's a great warning to the press. It's a great warning to the entertainment industry in the United States of America. Jesus listens. He watches. He loves His children. He cares for His children. He believes in eternity. It is a big deal to try and stumble people away from their relationship with God. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. At this point in this, uh, it, Jesus, the, the chapters divide the first 12 verses. Jesus turns and he addresses the multitude and the disciples. Also a part of that crowd are members of the scribes, members of the Pharisees, the religious establishment. They make up the crowd. And in verse 13, Jesus ceases to teach his disciples and he turns to them and he begins to denounce them. And he denounced them, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And he denounces them with eight woes upon them in that public setting. This is unbelievable what we're reading about in, in this passage this morning. Remember, Jesus is comparatively a very young man. He is infinite. He is as old as the ages. 
But in terms of being born into the world in his ministry and all in his public ministry, he lived for 33 and a half years. And you've got this 33 and a half year old young man who stands up in the public setting of the temple. And he dresses down and in the, one of the most uh, prestigious parts of the Jewish religious establishment right in front of a crowd. This is going to constitute chapter 23, Jesus' final words to the multitude, to the religious leaders in terms of teaching. After chapter 23, his whole focus moves to his disciples. So he's going to go out, but he's going to go out with a bang, but not for the sake of creating a bang. He's got something that needs to be said to these Jewish religious leaders. He is going to say it with an exclamation point. He's going to say it in a way that they cannot misunderstand how he feels about them and how they are representing his Father in heaven through their religious system. When we look at chapter 23, it's important for us not to look at it and say, wow, I love Matthew chapter 23 because that's where Jesus hammers the religious leaders. It's Im- what we want to take away from this chapter is to realize that Jesus, there was a lot that he very much disliked concerning the scribes and the Pharisees and their religious system. But it just wasn't just them. He dislikes the same things in this day and in this hour in human history in any denomination or non-denomination or any individual church that takes on those same characteristics while declaring itself to properly represent the God of the Bible. The other thing that this chapter does for us is, I never look at chapter 23 and I never look at the scribes and the Pharisees as if there's some kind of a gulf, the distance of the Grand Canyon between them and me. I come from the same Adam and Eve. I'm just as fallen as they are. I have a scribe inside of me. I have a Pharisee inside of me. I have a hypocrite inside of me all the way back from Adam and Eve. So what it does for me is I look at what it is that displeases Jesus, and if those things are present in my own personal life and relationship with God this morning, I want them outed so that they can be exposed and I can deal with them with God so that they are not a part of, of my life. And so with that, we tear into this chapter 23 and Jesus' uh, rebuke upon hypocrisy and hypocrites. And uh, he declares, uh, number one, in verses 2 and 3 concerning the Pharisees, that they say, but they do not do. Now, he refers to them sitting in Moses' seat. In those days, the teachers sat and the students stood. And so it, uh, the upside of that was the sermons would be shorter because you can only stand so long. I like it in the ancient Greek world, there would be a thing where you would, uh, and Paul would have probably hit it in his uh, travels. If somebody came up to you like they wanted to witness to you at a bus station or in the mall or they wanted to talk with you about anything, they'd say, hey, you got a minute? And what the person would do is he would lift one leg. So you got one leg worth of time. When this is tired, it's over. So it was a way of saying, be short about it. So, so the fact that they sat in Moses' seat 
was, Jesus was saying, they are the teachers of the law of Moses. That's what they claimed to be and that's what they were. And Jesus observed that in general, their pulpit ministry or their teaching ministry concerning the law of Moses, generally their teachers' teachings were dependable, but their lives weren't consistent with their teaching. So Jesus said, live the life they preach, but don't live the life that they, they live. In our, in our culture, we have a saying, and we use it uh, derisively towards someone, we say, oh, he's all talk. And that's a person that just talks and talks and they talk a great game and the whole thing, but they don't walk the talk. So they're just talky-talkies instead of walkie-talkies. So they're good for nothing, spiritually speaking. And that's what they were. They talked and they talked and they talked and they talked, but when it came to obey the Word of God, they didn't do it. And so he told them, you can listen to their teaching, generally dependable, but don't follow uh, their, their model. They, they're great religious leaders, but, don't, uh, but they don't live the life that they, they talk about. And I think that Jesus begins with this issue of, uh, of hypocrisy, in, uh, uh, in, in this thing of they say but they don't do is his starting point and all because that's probably where the greatest damage is done to our personal witness or, or to the reputation of the Lord where someone talks or somebody preaches and then they don't live what they preach but it's not just pastors or church leaders that's significant and, and that's obvious but you know you can, you can alienate an entire uh, title office. You can alienate an entire car dealership. Uh, you can in, uh, alienate an, an entire administrative center for public uh, schools with just one Christian in that environment who continually talks and says the right thing but refuses to live the things that they're talking about. And so it does a lot of damage. For everybody, it, this is applicational. So he begins here in, in, in this area, in the, in the realm of, of the hypocrisy. It's not talking about someone who uh, says, you know, we need to live a certain way, or the Bible says, and then try as we might, as we're trying to grow in the Lord and all, we fall short of that. Uh, that's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is deliberately saying one thing and then deliberately choosing to ignore what God says and doing precisely what I, we want. None of us is going to be perfect this side uh, of, of heaven. And, uh, but that's not hypocrisy. This is someone that's just settled in. They've grown comfortable with, with a bunch of spiritual talk, but they don't take it seriously for their own uh, lives And so Jesus doesn't want us living a hypocritical life. He says we're to be uh, doers, James said, doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. Jesus spoke of the fact that our light is to so shine before men that when men see our good works, they'll glorify our Father who is in uh, heaven. Notice in verse 4, he rebukes them for binding heavy burdens on people. And basically, he's, he's not rebuking them for teaching the Word here. Because the Word of God is not burdensome, uh, John writes in his first, first epistle. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. They are liberating. They're freeing. What Jesus is talking about is the fact that the Pharisees came in and they added their legalism to God's Word. 
And, and so he rebukes their, their legalism. And the Pharisees were the legalists of their day. And there's a difference between spiritual liberalism and, and legalism. The spiritual liberal, the Sadducees of those days, but they're very present today, is the person that turns to the Word of God, they see some command of God in the Word, they don't like it, they see some command of God in, the, in, in His Word, and it's very demanding, and they don't want to meet the demand of that Scripture, and so they explain away the strength of the passage. They'll explain away the demand of the passage. They'll explain away even the requirement of taking seriously what God has said there. So the liberal takes away from the Word of God. The legalist adds to the Word of God. Adds his own man-made interpretations, his own man-made traditions uh, to the, the demands of God's Word. He looks and sees God makes a command that is demanding. He says, that's not demanding enough. I will add my own uh, man-made traditions to it to make it even harder. The legalist has a, a way of thinking, and they think if God asks for one, then and that's good, then three times one must be better. A legalist doesn't feel that anyone is right in their relationship with God unless they're suffering in that relationship. And they will pile on whatever kind of legalism is required to keep a person fairly miserable in their per personal relationship with God because after all, that's the way that, that it ought, uh, ought to be. And and all of this is, of course, contrary to not only Jesus' teaching, but his own example. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And if you think you're about to get crushed now, wait till you see what I pile on you. That's not what he says. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so they, Jesus rebukes this laying of their man-made traditions and their man-made ideas upon people until they had made a simple relationship with God into a burden. And Jesus noticed that they did it without having any compassion on the people that they were crushing as a result. In verse 5, Jesus rebukes the, their motive behind their religious service and their religious activity, that it was to be seen by men. So to them, ministry, I mean, what, what reason would you serve God except that everybody notices you in doing it? They're completely self-centered in their uh, in their service. I'm going to serve God and I'm going to serve God in the most in, in, in kind of prominent ways so that, so that I'll get uh, noticed. And so ministry existed in order to draw attention uh, to themselves. The problem with that is that in a setting like this, any kind of a setting that is set aside for the worship of the Lord, all recognition that human instruments receive is recognition and glory that God is not receiving, but He is due. So they're competing with God for uh, 
the attention of God's people being, being upon God in settings that are supposed to be completely about God. One of the things that they did, and God had spoken to them in the law, and he had declared to them that they were to take his word and, and it was to be upon their foreheads and upon their hands. And basically what God was saying was, listen, I want, you're my people. I want your thinking. I want your processing. I want how you view life. I want it to be dominated by my word. I want your actions, the hand, the word on the hand. I want your doing in life to be dominated by my word. They took it literally. And so by Jesus' day, they had developed phylacteries, which was a little leather box that they would put uh, scriptures inside of. And you can see uh, Jewish people uh, doing this today. Jesus, by the way, does not condemn the phylacteries. He condemns something else, which we'll get to in a moment. But you'll see them tie the phylactery to their head, or they'll tie the, the box to their hand and the straps that wrap it around and, um, during times of prayer, and they'll pray to the Lord. What the Pharisees apparently had done at that time was they began to look and say, well, look at any old common Jew coming to the temple has that size of a phylactery. If we have only that size of a phylactery, then everybody will think that we're only as spiritual as they are. There's no recognition having a phylactery the size of everybody else's. So they supersized them. So here this guy, got, they got a little bigger phylactery on their forehead and on their right hand, and then someone would get a little bit bigger, and they'd get a little bit bigger, and the whole thing was going on like that. And they viewed themselves as being spiritual on the basis of the size of their phylacteries rather than whether their thinking and their doing was dominated by the Word of God. Another thing that God had called them to do, and Jesus references it here, was that on the hem of their robes, at each of the four corners of their robes, they were to put a blue tassel there, so that as they're going through life as God's people, they would look down, see the blue, which is the picture of the skies, and they would have this constant daily reminder that we are a heavenly people. That we're not supremely about what's happening in this world. We are supremely about God, the things of God. So let's live a God-like life in this world. That's what it was intended to do. The Pharisees supersized the tassels and the hem of their garments and made them bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the badge of spirituality became who has the biggest tassels or the biggest border on their robes rather than is a person, the true mark of spirituality, is a person walking in this world as a child of God, dominated by heaven. And so Jesus uh, rebukes uh, all, all of this. The outward appearances, the uh, attempt to appear spiritual on the basis of these things instead of the inward uh, reality. And we see the same kind of things that can happen today where people, you know, wearing crosses and and uh, nothing wrong with wearing a cross, but it's not a sign of spirituality necessarily. I almost always, when I run into somebody with a cross, uh, I'll say something like, I, I like your cross, what does that mean to you? I, guaranteed, half the time people have no idea, they have no explanation for that, what, what that cross means to them. Some of them are born again and they're thrilled to talk about it. For others, it's just a decoration in the culture. But somehow it's got like, okay, it's got this spiritual vibe that I like happening in my life. 
So this idea that I'm spiritual on the basis of some kind of ornamentation or some kind of uh, a certain kind of clothing or robes or this kind of stuff rather than, again, our thinking, our doing, our everything being dominated by God's word and, and heaven. Warning against an unhealthy concern for recognition from men. Then number four in verse six, Jesus rebukes their love for being the center of attention in spiritual settings. And so they like the best seats of the feast. These are religious feasts. So I might, I'm not coming to my house for a potluck. It's a religious feast. God's the center of attention. They like the best seats in the synagogue. That's a religious environment. God was to be the center of attention. What is the best seat? The best seat was the seat where they could be seen by the most people who were at the feast or at the synagogue. And the idea, again, is this desire to be recognized by other people and viewed as spiritual on the basis of some kind of a prominent seat that somebody's sitting in in these religious kind of, uh, of settings here. And so they, they went into these religious settings and they went into these religious places, which was wonderful for them to do, but their great concern was not that God would be glorified, their great concern was that they would be seen and that they would be the center of attention and that everyone would know that they were there and maybe even leave talking uh, about them. One of the fascinating, it's an interesting passage in the Old Testament. Um, I like it. I like what it instructs, instructs to my heart. But God spoke to the children of Israel and he says, When you build me an altar a place where sacrifices are going to be offered to him. He said, just build it out of stone that's just around you. Don't be carving that stone up into anything fancy that's going to take people's attention off of, of me and put it on the stone. And the second thing he said to them is concerning the priests. He said, when you go up onto the altar, he said, I don't want your legs to show. I don't want anyone to see your flesh. I don't want to compete with your flesh for the attention of my people and the gatherings that are associated with me. And so he prohibited that of them. God is to be the center of attention in these settings. And here they are as religious leaders competing with, claiming to represent God and competing with God uh, for the attention of his people. Notice also in verses 7 through 12 that they were kind of, uh, fixated on titles. They liked religious titles. They liked to be called uh, by people rabbi, rabbi. They liked to be walking through the marketplace in a kind of a crowded place and somebody said, rabbi, rabbi, you know, and then they would realize, all right, not only is somebody calling for my attention, but um, everybody in the whole marketplace now knows that I am a rabbi, and a rabbi was in esteemed position uh, in, in those days. And so Jesus is rebuking the fact, and it's very important to notice, that they love being greeted with these kind of titles. And so here we have a love for religious titles uh, for the sake of being thought of more highly than others as more spiritual than others. So they liked the distinction that a title offered to them. That they liked titles that implied that they were more spiritual than the average bear or the average congregant at the synagogue or at the feast. 
So they liked the titles because it put a distance between them and the other people. And they liked, they liked that kind of thing. So they had a, a fascination and a love for titles that would separate them from being considered equal with all of the regular worshipers of God. So it's a bad, it's a bad motivation that they've, they've got there. And so Jesus rebukes them for their love of title and, their, and, and the titles for a wrong reason and tells them, you know, they're not to call anyone father, they're not to call anyone, we're not to call anyone rabbi. Uh, the word rabbi means master or master teacher. Uh, God is the master teacher. doesn't mean we can't call our dad father, but he's talking about a, a spiritual context here. Then we're not supposed to call any religious leader father where there's this idea that they are something greater spiritually by virtue of a Tyler title than the rest of us. And, and so there's, there's not to be that distance. The fact of the matter is Jesus said here is we are all equal in the body of Christ. We just have different positions of responsibility in the body of Christ. No one is more or less spiritual solely on the basis of the title that they have. You can be, have the, the, you can be the grand poobah of whatever and be an absolutely carnal person. Have no title at all, come in and out of a church like this and nobody even notices you week after week. Maybe you don't want to be noticed and be the most deeply spiritual person in the room. Titles are no indication of spirituality, but they had lost sight of that. And they considered themselves more spiritual than others solely based upon the titles that they had. And this isn't just a Roman Catholicism issue. It also filters into Protestantism too. There are titles we ought to be somewhat careful about. I think about the title reverend. I'm not saying everybody in town ought to take the word reverend off of their name, but we ought to think about it a little bit. The word reverend means awesome one. And in the Bible, it is only used of God. I, I'm not in, I, I, if anybody ever calls me reverend, they don't know me. I'm so unawesome. You can't believe how unawesome I am. And so, but, but these titles that can sometimes come, so people say, well, they, they'll call me Pastor Damien. I'm great with that if they want it, but there's no thing of, is that you're doing what you're doing in the body of Christ or in this church. I'm, I'm being the pastor. I'm doing my thing. But we're all the, the same in it. Or you can come up and call me Damien. You can call me D. Everybody did when I played basketball. Hey, D. I was usually calling for them to pass the ball to me so I could get a shot off. Never saw a shot I didn't like. So, but, but this is that whole thing of where this whole title thing gets going like this. And, and Jesus said, no, nope. it, it puts in an unhealthy way, it puts people's attention. Uh, it takes it off of God and it puts it uh, on, on people. The title we should all strive to attain to in the body of Christ Jesus tells us here, is the title of a servant. And a servant is a slave, essentially. A servant is someone who makes life better for someone else. That's the highest title you can have in the body of Christ. And we all know how well we're doing in that title by how we react when somebody treats us like a slave. Sometimes we don't react so good. We're still in the you know, slave school, the servant school. But that's the highest title that we can attain to. Then Jesus moves in. In verse 13, I'll get you out of here on time, don't sweat it. 
in verse 13, he moves on and speaks very specifically now to the scribes and the Pharisees. But woe to you. I mean, Jesus just didn't say woe to people very often. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He didn't call people hypocrites very often. This is just like a big, really big deal to him. And I'm telling you, this, can, this, can re- this passage can really, it can be an affront to us. It can be an offense to us, depending on where we've come from religiously in order to come to know the Lord, or, or what system we are in religiously today. And, and, and so we get offended and we just want to throw the whole thing off and we forget, this is all in red. This is Jesus denouncing something that he would denounce just as equally today. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. He denounces the fact that these Pharisees were an obstacle to people coming to faith in Christ. They were an active obstacle to people coming to know Jesus and making Him their Savior. And one of the great methods that these Jewish religious leaders, you know, did against Jesus was by keeping their disciples in ignorance concerning Jesus and the claims of, of Jesus. So they rejected Jesus as their Messiah they rejected his claims, and so Jesus speaks to them of the fact that they shut up heaven against, they're not getting into heaven, but they compound it by not allowing other people to get into heaven. They discourage people from becoming followers of Jesus, either actively or through ignorance. You think about how many people, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I guarantee it'd be at least a dozen in this room here this morning. You multiply it all around the world. How many men and women had to leave a religious system to even hear about a personal relationship with God? To even hear about being born again? To even hear about the fact that they needed to be saved? That they could be saved through faith in Christ. That kind of stuff goes on all over this city, and it goes on all over this world, where religious leaders are not getting in themselves, and they are making it difficult for other people to get saved also. Jesus doesn't like it. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Here is the great religious leader, Jewish religious leader, the great Pharisee, who makes the big public prayer and he waxes eloquent in prayer. And then he's got a list in his pocket of what husbands have died uh, predeceased their their wives and left widows behind with some amount of wealth and then to go over to their house and in the name of God in the name of religion use some kind of manipulation to separate them from their inheritance and from their wealth and that kind of stuff was going on in those days and they were just religious thieves I don't like any kind of thief And it doesn't mean that I haven't been a thief in my life. I have been a thief in my life. I haven't 
Well, I can't even say I haven't done that. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. So I've done a lot, you know, of stuff. I hate it when I get caught right in the middle of my sermon like this. It's wonderful. It means my relationship with the Lord is current anyway, however embarrassing it might be. So let's backpedal just a little bit here. But anyway, you know, I don't like thieves. I understand thieves. All right, well, let's leave it right there. So I don't like thieves, and I don't like people taking what somebody else has worked hard for. I just don't, I just don't like it. And, uh, but you can at least look a thief in the eye that's an honest thief, so to speak. The worst thief in the whole world is a religious thief. A person that hides behind the name of God, claims to represent God, and their whole mission in life is to separate the weakest and the most vulnerable from their money and to make it their own. Religious thieves are the worst, and they had made a science of it. I can't help but think of some Christian television, some as a qualifying statement. I am not saying all Christian television. But I have seen many, many times, and that's not an overstatement, where people have made pleas for funds that have publicly addressed widows by the title in order to separate them from even fixed incomes and things to support the ministry for, and all kinds of shenanigans. Never feel guilty about dismissing that kind of guilt and that kind of condemnation and religious uh, thievery. I remember one time I was in a, in a Christian setting and uh, it, it had been portrayed to be one particular kind of thing. I just don't like being manipulated. And, it, and it, so it was supposed to be this particular event and all. And we got there and sat down a room of us, and then all of a sudden it became very apparent all of us have been invited here as they trotted out all of these different employees of this particular Christian organization and spoke about how they were not going to get paid unless you dug deep and that whole kind of thing. If the need had just been presented to me, I would have gladly given toward the need. But the second you try to manipulate me and do that kind of thing, my wallet went right back into my pocket on that. We are not to portray God in that kind of a way. He said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one convert, and when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell, that is, twice as likely of going to hell as yourselves. Now, He's talking to, to he's, not, he's not talking to trying to he's talking to Pharisees whose main goal was not to bring people into relationship with God to convert them to a relationship with God. Their focus was to convert them into Phariseeism, into a man-made religious system. So we're not talking about evangelism here. We're talking about them saying, I'm going to convert you into our little sect, our little religious system. And by the time you get somebody into that system, usually you get good pupils. They're going to want to excel the teachers. And now you've got twice the son of hell, twice a person that's twice as hard to save as if you never got your hands uh, on them. And so here's this elevation of denominationalism, non-denominationalism, joining some uh, religious sect, becoming more important to the religious teachers than just getting people connect, saved and connected with God. It's a great mistake. 
I love one of the quotes that I heard early in my Christian life, and I've never forgotten it. Campbell Morgan, one of the greatest Bible preachers of the last hundred years, and he declared an English preacher, and he said, I've found that the more spiritual a man is, the less denominational he is. And it's true. It doesn't matter about our little sect or our little thing. The big thing is people coming to know God and to walk with God. Don't convert them to us or to our thing, but to convert them into a relationship with the Lord. He said, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears, they were saying, by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. He who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. Here's what they're doing. The, ho the whole thing that they were doing here was just a sophisticated way of getting out of keeping their word. So here you are, guy, Pharisee walks up to you and says, Hi, Joe, I'd like to borrow $250. I'll pay it to you on uh, Wednesday. And uh, you say to the Pharisee, Listen, I need a vow of some kind uh, that you're going to do that. And the guy says, I swear on the temple, I swear on the altar that I will repay you on Wednesday. Well, you walk away and you say, man, i got a religious man swearing on the altar in the temple. That money is as good as back in my pocket on Wednesday. What you didn't know is that the Pharisees had set up a whole system that only they understood that if you swore by the temple or the altar, that vow was not binding. But if you swore by the gold in, in the temple or the gift on the altar, that vow was binding. And it was all this religious double talk covering lying and deceitfulness that they had institutionalized and made a part of, of their system. And Jesus looks at it and says, in essence, you claim to represent God and you're operating in this kind of deceit. And he pronounces a woe upon them for it. Now, Jesus tells us as his disciples what? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to swear by anything. And the reason we don't need to swear by anything is because for us as Christians, our yes and our no should be so good and so binding because of our concern to be a witness for Christ that we would never think of breaking that that vow. But this is the kind of thing that they were doing. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and uh, cumin, uh, these are herbs, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done, the justice, mercy, and faith, without leaving, or the, the tithing of the herbs, without leaving the other, the greater things undone, 
blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So he, he confronts their lack of proportion, their inability to give proper weight to what God has commanded. So the Pharisee wakes up in the, in the morning or he's... Uh, there they are, Mediterranean, they're getting, going to have a nice pasta, maybe a lightly sautéed chicken, some kind of a thing, something nice at night. So he goes into his, out in the garden, he grabs some herbs, he runs them in his hand here, covers 90% of the herbs, and he blows 10% away. He's going to tithe the herbs all the way down. He's going to tithe right down to his herbs, back to God. Jesus doesn't condemn that. doesn't condemn the man's zeal on, on that level. But what the Pharisees did is they had forgotten all about justice, all about mercy, and all about faith while doing these things. So they were the, just about the cruelest people in all of Israel. They were utterly unjust. They didn't keep God's, uh, God's word. They were uh, uh, absolutely unmerciful toward people. But they felt that they were okay with God simply because they tied all the way down uh, to their herbs. And it's the same kind of thing that can happen in our lives where we look and say, well, you know, i got these big, gigantic areas of disobedience in my life over here, and they're willful and they're deliberate, but I'm serving in the children's ministry, or I'm ushering in the church, or I'm doing some other kind of thing, and we ease our conscience by saying, I must be okay with God because I'm doing this smaller thing. And Jesus comes in and says, yes, but these other issues are far bigger in terms of your witness, and those need to be taken care of also. So a failure to give proper weight uh, to God's Word. And woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Maybe you've had this experience. You go to a restaurant. It will remain unnamed. You order an iced tea. You order a Coke, a dark beverage. And you begin to drink that after it's been served to you, and you drink down about two-thirds of the way And as you finally get down there near the bottom of the glass, you see a glob of gunk, the glass. Now, time begins to slow down just a little bit at that moment in time. It's not a pleasant experience. It's not the end of the world, but it's not pleasant. It's better than hair on a biscuit, but I mean, this is a... a, You look at that gunk, what's the first thing that goes into your mind? First thing, bar none, the first thing that goes in our mind, I hope that's on the outside and not on the inside. Why? Because the inside is more important than the outside. So you reach down and you flick the piece of gunk off, it's on the outside. You reach down, you go to flick it, it doesn't flick, it's on the inside. Why? Because the inside is always more important than the outside. That's the beauty of Christianity. What God does is God, Christianity is not God changing us from the outside in. It is God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit coming inside of us. He is a Holy Spirit. He makes holy whatever He enters into. He comes inside of our lives and He begins to clean up the inside knowing full well as that gets cleaned up, 
The outside takes care of itself. And so that's the way that Christianity works. Christianity is unique in all of the world on this basis. All other religious systems are an outward focus in the hope that if you can change enough about the outside, the actions, the this, the uh, uh, ritual, these kind of things, that ultimately it will have an impact on changing a person's heart. It doesn't work. It has to happen from the inside out. And that's really important for people that don't know the Lord yet to understand. How many people have you shared Christ with and they say, Oh no, I can't go. I can't go to church. I mean, I, I, gotta, I gotta clean some things up before. And they think that they gotta quit smoking. That's like the number one thing. They drink like a fish, but they gotta quit smoking before they can go into a church. Well, you gotta quit smoking, or I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a, a, a 24 pack of, uh, 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 of beer every two days or whatever. I gotta get that, and I gotta get this. And they think they gotta clean themselves up just to come to church, let alone to come to God. You don't need to do that. We come to God just as we are. He knows He's getting a project. You won't shock Him. And we come to Him just as we are. He comes into our lives and then He begins to change the inside and all of those other things begin to fall into place. Never ever wait until you've got your act together to give your life to the Lord. You don't have that kind of time because you're never going to get your act together. So the Lord takes us just the way that, that we are. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but, uh, but inward, inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. According to the law of Moses, if you were a Jew and you came into contact with a dead body or you leaned up against a tomb where a dead body was, was buried, you would be rendered ceremonially unclean. That's a big problem when you're going to Jerusalem to keep a feast. Because by the time you are ceremonially unclean, you are ceremonially cleansed, the feast is over and you've missed the whole thing. So what the Jews would do is during the times of the great feasts is they would whitewash or paint white all of the graveyards. Everywhere a body was buried. And bodies were buried in all kinds of places, in caves and all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't guess that there might be a body in there. They would paint the outside of it. So while you're eating your bologna sandwich, all beef bologna, on the way into Jerusalem, you wouldn't lean up against that and become ceremonially unclean because there's a dead body inside. And so these tombs looked beautiful on the outside, but they were filled with corruption. They were filled with what would defile you spiritually. And Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, you look like a million bucks on the outside. I mean, you look, you look whitewashed, you look just terrific. But the problem is, is you defile every single person spiritually that comes into contact with you. Now that's a terrible thing, accusation, accurate accusation to make 
of a religious leader that you leave people worse off spiritually for having come into contact with you than they were when they came into contact with you. But that's what the Pharisees were, and that's what the Pharisees did. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the killing of the prophets. And therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. To read the Old Testament history, the Jewish people and the Jewish religious leaders persecuted and killed just about every prophet that God sent to them. This is a historical fact. Because the prophets were sent to rebuke them of their sin and call them to repentance and to come back to God. So it, they figured... It's a lot harder to repent and do that. It's a lot easier to kill the voice of God. So they just simply killed and persecuted the prophets. And, and that's just the way that it was. For the most part in the Old Testament, the Jews never saw a prophet uh, that they weren't eager to destroy. It's just the way it was. These men, these Pharisees and scribes, they are sons of those, those Old Testament leaders as Jews. And they looked at themselves and they said, if we had been alive in those days, we would have never treated the prophets that way. We would have honored Isaiah. We would have honored Jeremiah. We would have honored Ezekiel. We would have honored uh, all of these, uh, these guys, Daniel. We, and, 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 and to give you an indication of how much we would have honored them, we wouldn't have done what our father did. They built monuments for the, where the supposed uh, bodies of these prophets were. And you can even see them in Jerusalem to this day. There was one very glaring problem with their self-deception, and Jesus is rebuking their self-deception, the idea that if we had been alive, we'd do it different. The glaring problem with their self-deception is at the moment they are congratulating themselves on being different from their father, they are planning the death of the Messiah that the prophets spoke about to come. They're going to do something that, that their fathers would have never even dreamed of doing, the far greater sin. And so he rebukes them for their self-deception, thinking that they were any different when murder was in their heart toward him. And Jesus then closes, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who sent, are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you that you shall see me no more. Till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And so he ends his public ministry with that declaration. He speaks to Jerusalem and he said, I came here and I wanted you to do what little chicks do when they're in danger and come under the wing of their mother. I came to protect you. I came to save you. But you refused. You wouldn't have anything to do with it. And so he said, your house is going to be left desolate. And within a few decades, the Roman general Titus with Roman legions will march into Jerusalem and he will leave a million dead Jews in the city and not one stone left upon another of that temple and that whole temple site. But Jesus is not done with the Jews as a people. And he speaks here of the fact, and it's important for us as Christians to recognize that everybody's saved the same way through faith in Christ. But Jesus is, the light is going to go on for the Jews in, in yet the future, and most principally at the time of his second coming, when they recognize and they ask, you know, where did these wounds happen in your hands and your feet and your side? And he said, I received these in the house of my friends. And the light goes on that they had crucified or been responsible for the crucifixion of their own Messiah. I think the passage is very valuable on a lot of fronts. But I want to close by just talking to those of you who don't know the Lord today. One of the biggest reasons that people say that they don't come to church or they don't become a Christian is the excuse of hypocrisy. Oh, I've known so many hypocrites. Oh, I knew a Christian one time and he was such a hypocrite. So I don't want anything to do with Christianity on that. Your takeaway from this chapter is to realize you can't use that as an excuse. Because Jesus dislikes hypocrisy even more than you do. But still calls on you to be saved. No one is ever called to put their faith in Jesus as their Savior on the basis of another human being. One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus in all of the Bible is a self-description that he gives in the book of Revelation where he declares himself to be the singular, the faithful and true witness. You must make your decision based concerning Christianity and concerning making Jesus your Savior and your Lord based solely upon Him, upon His life, upon His teaching, the life that, that He lived, and not on the basis of all of these other people who more or less, even including myself, claim to represent Him. Jesus is the standard. He's not asking you to put your faith in Calvary Chapel Modesto, First Baptist of Modesto, or, uh, you know, La Loma Grace Brethren, or any other church or faith in any other person but to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. And today's the day to do it. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. And they're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to invite Jesus into your life as your Savior and as your Lord today. And He will come into your life at your invitation and begin to wonderfully change you.